this is episode 173 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Blood Cells and the Bone Marrow, with Dr. Dominique Bonet. Hey, everybody. We are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. And if listening to this podcast isn't enough, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast, where we do our best to update you on all the latest news in the stem cell research field as it's happening in real time. Today, we have Dr. Dominique Bonet from the Francis Crick Institute in London, UK, on the podcast to talk about her research into why and how acute myeloid leukemia develops in the bone marrow. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, looking to stay current with the latest research and news in the fields of immunology and, can and cell biology, we'd like to remind our listeners to check out Science News by Stem Cell Technologies, featuring the most recent top peer-reviewed research and review papers, as well as industry policy and science news. Science News provides a platform that allows researchers to stay up to date with their field while saving time. So subscribe for free at stemcellsciencenews.com. We're going to start off with a paper that's not exactly a stem cell paper per se, but it's talking about an advance in CRISPR that could have a lot of stem cell applications. The title of this paper is CRISPR-Cas5 from Huge Phages is a hypercompact genome editor. This is coming from the lab of someone who's probably on the shortlist for a Nobel Prize right now, Dr. Jennifer Doudna over there in Berkeley. First author is Patrick Pausch. And I think the this is a shared co-first author paper with uh, Basim Al-Shayab as well. We know about CRISPR, of course, you know, this is a hot topic. It's a hot field that's emerged over the last decade. Your ability to edit genomes and target uh, genomic mutations to whatever portion of the genome that you're interested in, in human, animal, you know, plant, bacterial cells, of course. And of course, there's a million different versions of Cas9, uh, the endonuclease that's actually able to cut DNA and induce a double-stranded break to uh, facilitate genomic repair. Of course, a big problem with Cas9, the de facto go-to endonuclease for CRISPR, is that it's pretty big. Cas9 is pretty large, and this is preventing it from actually uh, being packaged in an all-in-one system. A lot of times you have to actually split up your Cas9 into multiple packaging vectors so that for the hopes of delivery, um, you would be able to uh, introduce it into the way that you want. Of course, this is introducing Cas5. Cas5 is from a uh, viral origin, actually. So CRISPR-Cas9 is coming initially from a, a bacterial origin. But Cas5 is a tiny endonuclease coming from a bacteriophage origin. It's a hyper-compact genome editor. So what are the advantages of this Cas5? Well, as I mentioned, it's half the size of Cas9. You can use it to deliver therapeutics pretty you know, easily that way. It can be packaged into a single AAV vector. It can cut plant, mammalian, and bacterial uh, DNA. This is something they validated in the paper, which is came out in Science not too long ago. 
It's got a pretty simple PAM recognition sequence. This is the, the sequence of the DNA that's actually recognized by the Cas endonuclease to target the region of the, DNA, the genome that you're interested in. So for traditional Cas9, that's an NGG um, sequence of nucleotides. But for Cas5, it's pretty much centered around a single T, so a single base, and that allows for a lot more flexibility when it comes to targeting the region of the genome that you're interested in. It's a double-stranded DNA cutter, just like Cas9. It's uh, it's easy. One thought is that it could be pretty easily converted into base editors, which is, of course, something that the lab of David Liu is working on. These uh, these versions of the Cas endonucleases that can be modified so that you can actually very easily change individual bases. So that's an obvious next step for something like this. There are some disadvantages to this Cas5, though. The human indel efficiency, so when they actually looked at editing human cells, the overall efficiency of inducing the uh, indels was pretty low. But it's not too different from what Cas9 showed pretty early on when, uh, when the initial Cas9 papers came out. Um, of course, there's always optimization when it comes to CRISPR, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot more protocols that are going to come out to actually improve those indel efficiencies. And the other obvious, very obvious, you know, next step here is to validate the efficacy of Cas5 in in vivo systems. This is actually not something they they did here. Everything they showed was in vitro in bacterial, plant, and mammalian systems. But hey, it's addressing a very important question and very important issue when it comes to delivery of your CRISPR components into a an in vivo system, right? If you can make these endonucleases really, really small, then perhaps that opens the door for therapeutic delivery. And it's, as I mentioned, it's an obvious next step uh, to look at the in vivo applications for this. But I'm pretty excited about it. They said the, the plasmids are going to be available pretty soon, and I'm sure people can't wait to get their hands on them. Yeah, it's hard for me to keep up with all these CRISPR variants. You mentioned the base editors, and there's just a couple papers in Nature Biotech this week, one from Young Lab, one from Zhang Lab, about these C to G editors, and you alluded to how, yeah, the next step, extending this CRISPR-Fi into those areas. And uh, and you also talked about, uh, you know, Lou Lab over there, uh, with their all their technologies that they've developed, you know, with the Prime, CRISPR Prime, with the all-in-one providing a template for the editing as well. So yeah, there's a lot of CRISPR to keep your eye on, and um, this is, I think, as Doudna is, is want to do. She's made a kind of fundamental shift here and removed the the obstacle of, of size uh, there, which is an obstacle to delivery. So a major improvement. But I'm wondering about, like, in terms of cargo limits, I guess, while CRISPR fundamentally is focused on these, you know, little nicks and, 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 and delivery to a specific region of the genome, are there limitations on how much you can deliver in terms of, like, gene replacement and gene correction? Do you know? Did they address that at all? Yeah, I'm not sure they specifically address that, but you're absolutely right. If you want to create a vector that has not only the endonuclease like the Cas5 here, and it's only 70 kilodaltons, just a just a tidbit there. If you want to include something that has not only the Cas5 uh, and also a repair template as well as your guide RNA, for example, uh, that repair template has to be pretty small. 
um, we were talking about this. If you want to introduce or replace an entire multiple kilobase gene, then you may have to have a separate um, separate vector to actually introduce that repair template. But if you're doing something like a point mutation, maybe even a, like a 500 base pair long uh, repair template might be good enough. So I think that is ultimately the hope here is that you'll be able to create these all-in-one systems where you have one, your Cas5 endonuclease, two, your guide RNA or whatever you're using to guide the Cas to the nu uh, to the to the genome, and then three, a small repair template. I think that's that is the ultimate hope here. It's really exciting, and you know what's amazing? It's been some years now since the the idea was introduced and the technology was advanced, but now I feel like we haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg in terms of the clinical application of these tools. So it's really exciting to be, you know, on the ground watching the tools come out as they uh, are developed. So it's an exciting piece of work. I think it's not exactly a stem cell story, but it's related to all science, including stem cells. We talk about CRISPR a lot, but I'm not going to talk about it right now. I'm going to talk about your thing a little bit. You love the heart. I love the heart, too. Um, and this is a kind of counterintuitive story that I always like these and the editors love these. Uh, and there's a lot to it. So I'm not going to, you know, kind of jam all the elements in here, but it's a big paper uh, from University of Pittsburgh, Partha Duda's lab, uh, like eight figures, 16 figures in the supplement. So there's a lot of information here, all kinds of mice. But it all began with this kind of idea and observation. You know, we all are aware of the link between insulin resistance and diabetes and the increased cardiovascular disease risk, right? You know, you get these plaques, say, you know, you get heart disease or heart attack and stroke, myocardial infarction. But what, you know, we never really think about is if myocardial infarction puts you at increased risk for insulin resistance and or diabetes, because, you know, why would you make that link? And that's where this paper started. It started with the observation that patients that had had an MI um, started presenting with de novo hyperglycemia, high blood sugar, um, and features of insulin resistance. And then when they actually simulated MI in mice by doing, you know, ischemic ligation, um, they found the same thing, insulin resistance. Uh, and so that led them to ask this question, what the heck is going on there? And the first thing I thought about, because this is a specialty of the group, is the macrophage. And also the macrophage um, and all tissues play uh, major roles in the homeostasis of the tissue, but also specifically in the resolution of injury. Okay, it's been shown in the pancreas, it's been shown in the skin, it's been shown in many regions that you need these cells uh, after tissue injury for the clearance of apoptotic bodies and also to modulate the tissue microenvironment, okay? Um, and this has always been investigated, not always, but mostly it's been studied in the context of like a local macrophage, right? But the idea of a, of a distant macrophage or a macrophage in a, that's distant from the site of injury has not really been well studied. And the question here with the group was, if we're having MI um, and there's uh, not a real re effect of macrophages in the heart that has been looked at, maybe there's this distal effect on macrophages that may be underlying the uh, 
into the hyperglycemia. Uh, okay, so the the first thing they did is to look at these visceral adipose tissue resident macrophages because they observed that those were significantly decreased. You know, they look in the fat when they're looking at insulin resistance, and they saw that macrophages in the fat were decreased and were undergoing apoptosis in the context in the mouse, not just of the MI, but also skeletal muscle injury, which is an interesting little tidbit there. Um, and they found that patients saw a similar, in human patients, they saw it was a similar de decrease in these visceral adipose tissue resident macrophages, right? So they created that link. And then they went on with all these types of mechanistic analysis and a number of mice uh, models. They showed that it was, in fact, this danger signaling associated protein high mobility group box one, okay, HMGB1, that was re uh, released by the myocardium after MI in the mice. And that triggered, triggered uh, apoptosis of the VAT macrophages via toll-like receptor 4, TLR4. All right. Um, and then they show a bunch of where these cells come from and whatnot I'm not going to get into. But the important other link that they showed was that these VAT resident macrophages, um, that the way that they uh, can modulate the insulin resistance is by secreting adiponectin, okay? And collectively, through all of these mechanistic links, I think the big idea is that uh, we should be looking at patients who undergo MI because it can increase their insulin resistance, which in then uh, you know, circles back in this deleterious cycle, aggravating their cardiovascular disease risk and complications. And maybe even more so there is that we might have a point of intervention. Maybe we should be looking to kind, res kind of restore the levels of adiponectin or stimulate the residual uh, visceral adipose tissue resident macrophages with like colony stimulating factor that they show in the paper can have an effect on these cells. If we could kind of like get them going, uh, would be a kind of therapeutic intervention that might mitigate the sequelae vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, the insulin resistance of cardiovascular events. So it was a kind of anti-dogmatic, hey, we saw this thing and wondered what, and then we made eight figures and a million mice, and we <laughs> got this science translational medicine paper. So a lot of work, and also I think a unique insight there that is, is important to many fields. You know, this isn't just about the heart. It's also an endocrine story. So pretty cool. Pretty cool paper there coming out of Science Translational Medicine. It's obviously got some very strong translational elements there. We know that there's a connection between diabetes and MI, but this is kind of showing the, the converse, that there's a connection between MI and insulin resistance. And I thought there were a couple of interesting things here. One, the fact that they're actually able to show that the skeletal muscles have that same conserved mechanism of causing damage to those uh, uh, macrophages after skeletal muscle injury. I thought that was, that was a neat conservation of the mechanism. And the two, a question is just, you know, th they were showing that these specifically it's these adipose macrophages that are being detrimentally affected. And of course, macrophages are found across the body and like in the, in the brain, for example. Uh, could you remind me a little bit of how they like focused on the adipose tissue specifically? I mean, did they show effects on other ma macrophages and other populations, other tissues of the body as well? Well, they focused doing this lineage tracing. They really dug deep on these VAT macrophages because, yeah, that was like the linchpin of their story. And fundamentally, 
I think one of the questions is probably a reviewer comment that they had to address was like, where do they come from? And if this is a macrophage, how come these cells can't be reconstituted by the typical, you know, hematopoietic, you know, stem progenitor, you know, derivatives? Why, why can't they be remade? And what they showed is that these things are established at birth. Um, they take residence in the adipose tissue. And once they're lost, there aren't any more that are made. And they did a ton of lineage tracing to really establish that. That was a huge part of this paper. Um, whether or not other macrophages have similar roles in kind of distal or distant injury, I don't know that they addressed experiment. Well, they didn't address experimentally. I don't even know if they discussed. But I think it'd be an interesting question uh, moving forward to see whether or not there's some other, other you know, similar type mechanisms at play in, in, in the context of injury and its relation to, you know, physiological processes. Yeah, I'm not hating on the work. I mean, as you mentioned, it's eight figures and 16 supplements. So plenty of plenty of solid data there. And speaking of solid data, we're moving on to a cell paper. So you know, this is going to be chock full of data. The title of this paper is cell types promoting goosebumps form a niche to regulate hair follicle stem cells. Goosebumps, not really something we talk about a whole lot here. Of course, certain papers can give you goosebumps because we're all nerds here, right? So goosebumps, which is, you know, piloerection, right? It requires the action of the hair follicle, the erector pili muscle, and the sympathetic nerve. That's how you actually end up getting goosebumps, right? It's these little pimples that form up on your skin when you're cold, for example. And that's actually a very important little tidbit that they focused on here in this paper. So this uh, multiple cell type, multiple tissue interaction provides a really nice model system to, to study the interactions between the epithelial cells, mesenchyme, and also nerves. And so here they're showing that these erector pili muscles and the sympathetic nerves in these, uh, in these niches for the hair follicles form a a uh, dual component niche to actually modulate hair follicle stem cell activity. So these sympathetic nerves are actually forming like a, a synapse-like structure in these hair follicle stem cells, and they're regulating the proliferation and function of these hair follicle stem cells through the action of norepinephrine. But the uh, erector pili muscles also maintain a sympathetic innervation to these hair follicle stem cells. And the important thing here is that when you get rid of norepinephrine signaling, these hair follicle stem cells enter a really deep quiescent state. Uh, they downregulate the cell cycle. They downregulate their metabolism and upregulate quiescent markers like FOXP1 and FGF18. They also did a whole developmental angle of this study uh, where they showed that the hair follicle stem cell progeny can actually secrete sonic hedgehog to direct the formation of these erector pili uh, sympathetic nerve niche. Uh, but I thought the, the coolest part of this whole study was they showed that in the cold, in the cold, there's a stimulation of that sympathetic um, nerve system in the little uh, hair follicle niche. And that cold stimulation is actually enhancing the proliferation and function of the hair follicle stem cells, causing the animals to grow more hair. And so there's an evolutionary aspect of this, right? You know, typically when you think of animals in the cold, they have a pretty thick coat of hair. You've seen pictures of those little bunnies, little rabbits with really poofy 
coats of hair. Same thing with wolves have really solid coats of hair and, and bears too, for example. And so maybe that's the connection here is the cold is actually stimulating the formation of hair. We were talking about the human component of this, whether it's actually a, some sort of human analog to uh, hairier people being from colder environments. I don't know if that's actually a thing, but a really beautiful mechanistic story that's answering a very simple, fundamental biological uh, observation in, in goosebumps that you know we've all experienced, right? So really, really neat cell paper coming here from the lab of Yachia Shu, who we've actually covered previously on podcast uh, from the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. The first author is Yulia Schwartz. Really neat study. Yeah, that is so neat. I love, uh, you know, I love the counterintuitive, the anti-dogmatic. I also, and I'm sure I'm not alone, you love the stories that, you know, are in cell and so have a ton of data, but they, they address a kind of simple question or a simple observation like goosebumps. So uh, it's great to see that. But it, it led to so many questions for me because the, you know, there is the one thing about mice and how, how well this is conserved in humans. I mean, that's one obvious thing, and I would say probably not as much. But you talked about the evolutionary component, but also adaptation within an animal's own lifetime, right? So you take these animals and you move them from warmth to cold. Uh, do you see that their hair grows longer, that they grow more hair, it's thicker? But there's also, like, for me, from an experimental standpoint, coming from the ISSCR, I wonder how would we even ask these questions in a, in a human system, you know, <laughs> absent putting humans in experimental uh, situations that we're not ethically comfortable doing, like with organoids, like, can we add, you know, between Elaine Fuchs's talk uh, yeah. this year, where she talked about, you know, the different layers, if you remember that, you guys should go back to the YouTube videos. To talk. I, I couldn't uh, give it a better rundown than uh, Arun did. But it was a real nice way of, of talking about the interface of the biological system with the environmental system, right? Uh, and then you think about Carl Kohler's uh, yes. talk from a year ago in the organoids there and growing hair. Can we endow the system with the kind of hot cold? You know, we do everything at 37 degrees. Can we even simulate the cold? Not really, right? Because at the cell level, it's all 37 degrees. So what's the interface? And this, the system is complex as it, as it is described in this paper, and amazingly so. The system is even more complex on a meta level than uh, I think we can comprehend at this point. It's amazing. We are on the same wavelength, Daylon. That's the first thing I was thinking about was uh, Carl Kohler, who was a guest on the podcast not too long ago. Of course, he's actually created some of these organoids that are able to grow human hair. And what if you actually take some of those organoids and threw them into the cold so long they could, as long as they could survive and adapt to it. So I don't know. I mean, it's something to think about. Carl, if you're listening, I've got an idea for your next grant. So how about that? <laughs> Hairy organoids. Uh, that's a good title. I think everyone would go for it. Um, you know, in a nod to Dominique Bonnet, who is, you know, the primary influence behind the cancer initiating cell, our final roundup story is going to be about that, so-called cancer stem cells, although I'm sure our guest would uh, maybe have a, a little bit of a debate on the nomenclature there to be conservative. But this is a story from Sunyu Wang from UCLA. Uh, the group there was looking at cancer stem cells, cancer-initiating cells uh, that have been classically associated with tumor initiation, growth, metastasis. Um, 
And now more than ever, I think with accumulating evidence and some controversy along the way, of course, it's been more than 20 years, but um, over that time, I think it's uh, become relatively clear that these cancer-initiating cells are responsible for a large degree of cancer therapy resistance, relapse, recurrence. Uh, so uh, the Wang group at UCLA, they've been looking for some time at the role of this one specific uh, factor, BMI1, um, which has been found to control cancer-initiating cell self-renewal, and it functions in a lot of different human cancers, including this particular cancer, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, which is an aggressive malignancy with a low five-year survival rate and poor prognosis. It's very invasive, frequently metastasizes to the lymph nodes. Um, and, you know, separately, there's this other uh, target, the programmed cell death protein one, PD-1, um, which has now become famous in the field of immunotherapy because PD-1 blockade combined with chemotherapy, it's kind of changed the landscape of cancer treatment because you blockade of PD-1 unleashes the immune system on cancer cells that have been evading tumor surveillance so the immune system can go after it, right? So PD-1 has been combined with a lot of chemotherapy, including treatment of uh, this head and neck squamous cell carcinoma. Um, and it's changed the landscape with the treatment, but the response rates are not super high and the, the duration of response is, is relatively short relative to other treatments, probably because this cancer is pr particularly aggressive. Um, but it speaks to specifically the, the fact that these head and neck squamous cell carcinomas probably become resistant to the PD-1 blockade and chemo um, because you have these cancer-initiating cells that outgrow, right? So let's look at the combination of BMI-1 therapy, right? The WAN group has been really heavily leveraged, heavily leveraged in this BMI-1 therapy, and a lot of groups have shown that BMI-1, targeting BMI-1 can work. But the, the question is, can you combine it with this immunoregulatory modulation thing, this PD-1 blockade? blockade. And uh, the problem with that experimentally is that when you're doing a tumor study, you're typically using xenografts, right? And human xenografts of tumor in immunocompromised mice. And so because these animals don't have an immune system, there's no such thing as kind of unleashing the immune system with the PD-1 blockade, right? So fast forward to the WAN group system, which they established a couple years ago, which is like a, a teratogen-induced or chemically-induced this for nitroquinoline one oxide induced uh, system. It's in the context of this BMI1 CRE-RT2 uh, TD tomato mouse. So they can induce uh, head and neck squamous cell carcinoma type cancer that fully mimics the human form in its growth and its metastasis. And then they can also then trace these BMI1 positive cancer initiating cells in a, a environment where the immune system is, is intact, okay? And long story short, they found that if you combined pharmacological in, uh, or genetic inhibition of BMI1, it did great when you combine it with PD-1. It not only uh, eliminated the cancer stem cells, but it, it caused this tumor cell intrinsic immunity, so-called, 
um, which was inhibition of metastatic, metastatic tumor growth and total prevention of the tumor relapse. So all in all, what this is, it's, a, it's using this tool that they drummed up and, and doing a kind of preclinical pre study of a combination therapy of BMI1 inhibition with PD-1 blockade and essentially providing a very sound justification for moving this into uh, phase one clinical trial in humans. And it's why it was a cell stem cell paper. So here after all these years, two decades, Dr. Bonet, your idea, your fundamental seminal idea is still hot and uh, therapies are actually coming to market. So it must be a nice place to be. Yeah, this is a perfect transition to Dr. Dominique Bonnet, who is our guest today, the cancer stem cell extraordinaire. It seems like this BMI-1 is a solid target when it comes to focusing on those cancer stem cells. And it makes me wonder, um, and we, we were discussing this a little bit before the show, that BMI-1 is not only a great target for these head and neck squamous cell carcinoma uh, cancer stem cells, but also potentially other populations as well. So it makes a lot of sense to me that if you're able to just identify a cancer stem cell population by a specific, and that again, very important, specific marker uh, that's only marking the cancer stem cell population, then an approach like this, I think, makes a whole, whole lot of sense. So it's just a matter of finding those right markers to identify those cancer stem cell populations. Makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> yeah, and as an idea, I think it's a bit of a Trojan horse, right? Because this, the fundamental obstacle here is we can't look at this uh, PD-1 blockade in our all of our xenograft models. We take this one uh, inducible cancer model that looks just like a human, and it turns out that combining you know whatever therapy exists for that cancer with PD-1 blockade happens to be a real success. So I, I think a lot of uh, cancer researchers out there are scratching their head about whether or not they should initiate a trial of uh, combinatorial therapy with PD-1. I mean, it's not the first time I'm sure any of those people have thought about it, but I bet a lot of, a lot of researchers are probably focused on trying to create a similar inducible model so that they can look at uh, a, a cancer in an uh, immune intact animal or in some kind of humanized animal, maybe. So there's a lot of, a lot of things that are going to come from this and uh, hopefully a lot of cures. Um, and it all comes from this seminal idea. I think you could uh, attribute a lot of these developments and a lot of the cures we've seen over the past couple decades to this fundamental idea of addressing the cancer at its root. We're going to talk about that with Dr. Bonet. But before we get to that, I have a quick message from stem cell technologies. Do you work with mesenchymal stromal cell-derived extracellular vesicles? Derive and expand MSCs free of contaminating extracellular vesicles, including exosomes, by using stem cells extracellular vesicle-free mesencult ACF plus medium. Mesencult ACF plus does not contain any animal components or extracellular vesicles and supports the generation of functional MSC-derived extracellular vesicles. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash mesencult. All right, you guys, on this episode, we have with us Dr. Dominique Bonnet, who's group leader of the Hematopoietic Stem Cell Laboratory at the Francis Crick Institute 
also professor at the University College of London Division of Biosciences. The Bonnet Lab studies the ex extrinsic mechanisms that regulate hematopoietic stem cells, why the process can go wrong and create faulty stem cells that only make leukemic stem cells, and how they can intervene in order to eradicate the leukemic stem cell. Dr. Bonnet, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, uh, Denon and, and Aaron, for uh, having me uh, this afternoon. I'm very pleased to get uh, the discussion with you ongoing, actually. Well, the pleasure is ours. Uh, I'll start just by, you know, introducing myself as a fanatic of the blood. Arun will tell you that I'm I'm really fanatical about the blood. And it's true <laughs> because for me, it's one of the first concepts for me personally, the first concept, concept in biology that I came across, you know, in my childhood. Um, you know, you bleed and you wonder what goes on there. And in terms of the sheer volume, the output of blood stem progenitor cells in the human lifespan is unparalleled. You, you know that. A lot of people know that. Um, from a disease standpoint, blood was the first cell therapy. So, you know, it's notable there. And we've completely turned around the mortality from hematological cancers and other malignancies from like, you know, it used to be 90% of people would die from these uh, diseases and maladies. And now it's a 90% cure. So we've really turned that around. And now even more so, we're leveraging the immunological properties of blood cells to target cancer. So the field is expansive. It's massive. Um, but there's still some some stuff left there, right? That's why uh, you're still in business. What, what, in your opinion, are the great challenges and or the hidden potentials that are remaining in, in the field? So I, I suppose there's, there's a number. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, everybody can go home. No, I, I think for us working on both uh, leukemia and normal, there's actually two main issues. Uh, one for the normal, I think it's uh, still uh, only well will be to you know expand the stem cell uh, for transplantation. Uh, which is still, you know, even though uh, a number of labs, including ourselves, have uh, worked on it, I, I don't think we have the bullet to really expand the stem cell for, for a long period of time. And in leukemia, I suppose the oligoel, at least for leukemia, there's still a very long, long way to cure patients. Uh, so clearly we have made a very good advance on uh, providing patients with a longer remission rate, uh, and most of the patients will enter into remission, but in the uh, AML that I'm looking, I'm working on specifically, there's still a, a large uh, proportion of patients that will die from their disease, and I think there's a, a huge uh, burden on, on what we can do in order to uh, really cure, cure the leukemic uh, patients, and these are coming from either an intrinsic property of the leukemic cells, which is not necessarily uh, limiting to leukemia, but clonal evolution is uh, is known for everybody working on, on cancer, uh, which we have to deal with because cancer is not a, it's a moving target. And even if we look at, you know, potentially a, a few uh, mutations that we can have inhibition with, the question is, you know, are they going to be uh, a subclone coming up uh, that will reestablish the leukemia, 
and and on a on a more maybe related to what my lab is now working is uh, to try to better understand the cancer stem cell and normal stem cell in relationship with uh, all the bone environment and this I believe we don't know much about it still. Mm. So there's a, a lot a lot unknown about this crosstalk. Yes, we've certainly come a long way, and but we still have a long way to go when it comes to studying cancer and leukemias as well. And speaking of cancer stem cells, Dr. Bonet, you're, of course, one of the world's experts on the topics. And you actually showed back in the late 90s that leukemias can originate from a small population of tumor-initiating cells. And these days, it's a pretty well-established field. Cancer mm -hmm. stem cells have been identified not only in cancers of the blood, but also a variety of other tissue types like the brain, the breast, for example. But of course, given the importance of these stem cells and the overall tumor cell population, they represent a tremendous therapeutic target, these cancer stem cells. So could you give us your thoughts on the current state of the cancer stem cell field and what you think might be the best therapeutic approaches in targeting cancer stem cells, especially when it comes to, to solid tumors? Yeah, so I mean, clearly the, the cancer stem cell in, in general has been kind of a a long, long, long process to to really uh, uh, get people uh, interesting in. I think a lot of controversial uh, controversy was uh, started mostly based on what we. Uh, I think it was more terminology problem, because everybody was thinking, oh, if we talk about cancer stem cell, it means that only stem cell can be the target of transformation, which. At the origin, we were very keen on not using the term cancer stem cell, but leukemia initiating cells, or because the initiation of the tumor could be anywhere in the hierarchical structure of the of, of the hematopoietic uh, system. And it's clear, at least in AML, actually, that mostly probably the the leukemic initiate leukemic stem cell are not necessarily a stem cell disease. Uh, the, the the stem cells are probably more likely to be a pre-leukemic stem cell disease. So the mutation may arrive, the first mutation arrive in leukemic stem cell, but later on, it's probably more progenitor, myeloid progenitor that is being uh, targeted for transformation. So what what is the holy grail for, for advancing the field, I suppose, is the fact that, as I mentioned, at least in our field, uh, the Leukemic stem cell uh, is is a moving target. There's more than one subpopulation of leukemic stem cell. Uh, there's different clone of leukemic stem cell in patients with different mutation, and uh, there's even uh, even now uh, there's also a possibility to relapse based on the fonder mutation, meaning that pre-leukemic events can be uh, the, the 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 fraction that uh, will be responsible for the relapse. So understanding and, and uh, trying to treat and and target all these leukemic stem cells is very difficult. On the other hand, every patient will have a combination of mutation that is specific to that patient. So it's almost like you need to have a personalized uh, combination of, of uh, therapy uh, and knowing what mutation is present in this patient, you probably wanted to use, you know, target one, two, three that will target each of these mutations. 
the other possibility, which clearly the field is looking at, is to intervene as soon as possible so that when the the, the, the patient is more like at the pre-leukemic stage, uh, as we know now that, you know, clearly even a normal individual uh, with age will have some of these pre-leukemic uh, mutations. question is, you know, we know that is happening. We Could we predict who, which of these patients will develop into full-blown leukemia and can we prevent it before? And that is still potentially where I, I believe we will make more progress than than waiting for the full-blown leukemia with uh, you know, four or five or six or seven subclones uh, that will be very difficult to altogether uh, kill uh, kill all all at once. Um, I think also the other the other thing that I think we could look at is essentially you know leukemic and probably same for for solid patient, uh, solid tumor maybe is uh, to see whether or not we can halt the progression of the disease. And, you know, leukemia is clearly acute leukemia, as is, uh, the, no, the name say, is acute. So if we can actually damper the proliferation and damper the progression, maybe we could have a chronic, chronic disease like MDS, and this patient can live uh, relatively happily uh, for number of, of years with a chronic uh, kind of chronic phase. So if we can do that with acute phase and, and get, you know, a re-establishment of uh, normal stem cells, well, that probably will be also a, a, way, a way to go. Like, you know, in CML, for example, you know, the patient take a, a bullet uh, to, to uh, be able uh, they need to take it all the lo for a long time, but that will be the, the, the idea. If we can maintain the, the disease to a certain low level, um, people may, may actually live happily for, for a long period of time. Yeah, management, right? The idea of uh, dying with the disease instead of dying from the disease. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also, you noted there, the, the personalized approach, right? right? We're trying to attack these tumors before they really get going and trying to mm -hmm. get a specific cocktail for each patient, depending on the subclones. And also, you mentioned it earlier, and I'm circling back around here to attacking the cancer where it lives, right? The whole idea yeah. of targeting the microenvironment, and you and others have focused increasingly, I think, on, on the microenvironment as a contributing factor to disease progression. I know one study I saw from a couple years back, you were using two photon, mm -hmm. uh, the bone marrow vascular niche to highlight this phenomenon. And that's a big factor, right, is that you need to really visualize and see and observe these phenomena, both steady state as well as in the context of disease or insult. You have to image the niche, uh, and there's all these other kind of molecular barcoding for single cell genomics and other emerging technologies um, to elucidate the secrets of hematopoiesis. What's the power, in your view, like, what's the big, big goals uh, mm -hmm. that can be attained using these new technologies? What kind of um, resolution are we going to be able to reach now with them in hand that we might not have been able to see before? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, two photon was, I think for us, the, this paper actually uh, was interesting to mention because uh, we have this kind of image uh, probably 
four or five years before we started to do anything about it. But it was so you know, interesting to see that, you know, the AML was really growing on top of the vessel and we were seeing some abnormality on the vessel and nothing, you know, nothing much. And I, I clearly, you know, thought that was something to investigate further. So I clearly imaging uh, the image that we have uh, obtained by two photon really push us to, to develop a, a project on it. So I think, you know, it, Imaging are, are very strong to to look at, you know, and to to apprehend what is going on. I believe we have a lot to learn on even how the leukemia progress, where they are at early stage, how the clones evaluate, are they at this specific uh, niche uh, at different stage of the progression of the disease? Uh, we don't know anything about that, and I think special special resolution which is now very trendy that I think is, is started to, to be, uh, you know, a gold standard probably uh, soon. is very well uh, characterized, I think, and easy, uh, easier, I suppose, in solid tumor because uh, it's easier to get, uh, uh, you know, section. It's a little bit more difficult in, uh, in getting a trephine from patient and doing these uh, kind of things. But I, I clearly believe that we need to know specifically where leukemia initiate, where they are, in what proximity, with what kind of stroma cells, and how they started to uh, slowly uh, modulate this environment. Because originally, you know, when you have a full-blown leukemia, probably every stroma cell is, is impeded. But at early stage, probably you can already intervene at this level. And maybe, you know, if you can target the stroma in order to, you know, get the leukemia not to invade uh, further, that could be an interesting uh, option uh, there. So I think imaging, whether it's to photon, whether it's, uh, you know, more uh, immunostaining with uh, added the spatial resolution with RNA-seq attached to it. I think that's something that I think will 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 allow us to learn much more about, you know, the, the positioning and maybe adding barcoding in order to look into or, uh, you know, genome sequencing at that same level in order to see, you know, which subclone genetically is where Maybe there's some subclones that are more resistant to drugs that are in specific places. So clearly, I think uh, understanding these in the context of also the bone niche and the organization of the leukemia, whether it's leukemia or cancer, as I say, is going to be very important. And I, unfortunately, I think, you know, we are at early stage. I don't think a lot of people are able to do all these um, yeah, multi-omics uh, in, in that way. But I think uh, the technology is advancing very quickly, allowing us to, you know, to be able to do these kind of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these new technologies are really 
taking over the stem cell field. We talked about imaging and we talked about single cell RNA seq mm-hmm. almost every episode of the show. And they're enabling us to make, you know, amazing new discoveries. And speaking of which, your lab actually just published something in the, the journal Blood. So let's talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's a paper about how activation of the receptor tyrosine kinase, RET, can improve long-term hematopoietic stem cell outgrowth and potency. Now, of course, long-term expansion and maintenance of HSCs is something of a holy grail that a lot of folks are working on. We've talked about this. So walk us through the paper a little bit. Would RET hyperactivation help us get to the point of being able to cultivate HSCs indefinitely? And thinking long-term, do you think we'll ever actually be able to expand and maintain HSCs to the point where we can actually fulfill that dream of unlimited blood production ex vivo or in vitro. So how far away are we? I think we are still quite far. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, clearly, I think there's, you know, we, this paper clearly is one st- stage of, you know, uh, of combination of, of, of cytokines. I think there's, you know, if you look at the literature, I think uh, almost every month there's some combination that are maybe better than the others. Um, so uh, our hypothesis again was, you know, that maybe, uh, you know, t- some sort of uh, cross talk with the environment will be interesting. And I think the uh, the um, glial family ligand was was reported in mouse already. So we thought, you know, maybe, you know, something to do with uh, the combination of the niche and the stem cells and where they are. Uh, so we, we we interrogate, you know, whether in human uh, stem cell, uh, the uh, the client um, family ligand receptor was present, and we started to look at weight uh, at the surface of the uh, adult uh, and uh, cold blood HSC, and we find indeed that just using a simple uh, fax analysis and sorting on weight positive and weight negative even just the expression of weight at the surface of the cells allowed a certain level of enrichment, which allowed us to think, you know, maybe if these uh, populations that are expressing weight are actually a bit more enriching stem cell, maybe adding the ligand uh, will actually help them to, you know, proliferate. And uh, in combination with uh, other factors that is usually uh, used in clinical uh, expansion, we essentially indeed show that you know this uh, this addition of the uh, the GDNF uh, GFR one alpha actually indeed allowed a better uh, expansion uh, and especially uh, via uh, a better survival and uh, decrease in in uh, some of the uh, uh, stress factors that is uh, automatically uh, going to happen when you cultural stem cell at vivo. But, you know, I, I'm sure there's, you know, uh, even uh, Dale and I think uh, have a paper on that a few years back about, you know, uh, using endothelial cell as, a, as also another way to, you know, uh, to, to use the niche factors uh, in order to expand stem cell. And I think, uh, you know, somehow I, I believe in the, the, the idea of, you know, equating kind of a niche <laughs> Uh, ex vivo uh, potentially in order to get uh, what nature is doing automatically um, will probably be a a good way to to start also. 
Dr. Brene having a look at my work, huh? huh. <laughs> well, what do you know? I'm very pleased. That makes three or four scientists who have now directly referenced that paper. I'm going to go get myself <laughs> a drink after this interview. Um, it truly, though, it would be uh, uh, transformative, right, to foster this ex vivo self-renewal of uh HSCs. I mean, we could talk for an hour at least just musing on what that would do to the clinical landscape. I mean, that would be a fun conversation, but we don't have the time. I know you got meetings. Um, and you alluded to it a little bit earlier about the, the kind of clonal evolution of cancer, but now we're discovering more and more that there's a lot of uh, clonal diversity even within the normal, quote unquote, normal um, hematopoietic stem progenitor cells within individuals that changes and evolves over a lifetime, right, of hematopoiesis. A lot of cell divisions. Um, and it's not just cancer that that relates to or precancer, right? But there seems to be like an intersection with cardiovascular health that's mm -hmm. emerging that's really exciting and impactful. Um, do you think that these new insights raise concerns regarding the in vitro expansion of HSCs or progenitors, period? Like, is it going to be risky doing any kind of ex vivo expansion? Or do you think it's, I mean, equivalent to in vivo expansion? And are there kind of like outcome measures that are built into clinical trials that address this kind of latent risk? Or is that kind of, it hasn't trickled down yet? to the clinical clinical trial designs. Can you address yeah, those I, questions? Yeah, so I, I think at the present time, I don't believe that uh, the expansion that is used, I mean, clearly there's not tons of clinical trials that do uh, test ex vivo expansion and, and with transplantation of, uh, of HSC. And I think the, these are quite short term, so I don't necessarily believe that in that level of culture, in a few days, you're talking about a few days, less than than a week probably, uh, that is something that is transplanting to patient. I don't believe that, uh, I mean, I, maybe maybe it's uh, it's it's uh, will be good to, to, to check on what are the mutations that may have a cure, but I think we're not at the level of, you know, 100-fold expansion, we are at the, the less than 10-fold expansion probably, so I'm not sure that is risky uh, at, at that stage, especially because we are using uh, umbilical cord blood in usually and the ex vivo expansion because that's the best source and the, the most uh, need for expansion. So I think these uh, cells are, are young, they are healthy and uh, probably a few more rounds of expansion will probably not uh, make a, a huge difference. It's probably more likely, you know, if you take a adult, old adult bomber and you do the same process, maybe that it will be more risky uh, to re-inject into the patient, but it's clearly not uh, the case at the present time. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we were discussing about, you know, pre-leukemia, uh, clearly, you know, uh, if you are doing bone marrow transplantation using age, uh, age individual as donor, clearly it uh, has been even reported that, you know, in some rare cases, uh, leukemia arises from from the from the donor mm. and not from the recipient. So it 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 has been occurring in in some rare cases, and clearly, uh, probably because of that, because probably there's donor was supposed to be healthy and at the end maybe they were already or not pre-leukemic or at least their cells based on the fact that transplantation is also a stress mm. 
uh, and you stress maybe you know uh, the the HSE that you inject in a patient may may have more ability to stress and and and, and get mutation. So we I think it's uh, it's clear that you know with the new technology we should have better way to to look at uh, all these uh, but it's true for everything that is a clinical setting you know, MSCA transplanted or IPS derived cells transplanted I think uh, everybody should be highly cautious about you know looking at what you transplant back to the patient. I saw Dalen's face just light up when you mentioned this paper, so I'm sure that made made his day. So thanks for that. We've been talking about the present and the future of HSC biology and also the the translational potential. So, but let's bring it back for a little bit. So, as we mentioned earlier, you were the first to present conclusive evidence for the cancer stem cell model from a paper in Nature Medicine back in the late '90s, where we actually showed that AML originates from a, an HSC. Um, you know, population. And certain papers are really responsible for establishing an entire field. For example, Shinya Yamanaka's paper identifying iPSCs, and your paper is actually certainly one of those. And like Dr. Yamanaka's paper, your paper actually only had two authors, yourself and your postdoctoral advisor, the one and only Dr. John Dick. And it seems like such a contrast to the high-profile papers of today, which can have consortiums of dozens of authors working together across multiple institutions. So tell us about that moment in time, working on that critical study with just you and your advisor. What was that like? Yeah, I suppose it was uh, <laughs> it was the early days where, you know, probably a lot of paper, you know, in the early 90 or late 90, you don't have to have, uh, you know, huge technology, you know, simple concept or concept uh was uh was enough to 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 get uh, to get to to a good journal at that stage now more and more you need more and more you know and uh, all this technology that we are discussing about single cell or whatever or attack sake or, you need more and more mechanistic you need more and more uh you know data in order to convince everybody i think uh you know at these these days uh, the biology, uh, you know, simple stem cell biology was 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 clearly sufficient to make the point that you know the the concept of uh, you know our organization of AML, which was actually uh, in 1994, actually already the concept was there because uh, John Dick and uh, Svilapido have already shown in one patient that was the, the limitation of the study, but they have already shown that, you know, in one of the ML, they were able to uh, transplant uh, also an equivalent uh, 34 positive, 38 negative. So I came up just at the time where Tsvi was finishing up uh, this study, and I wanted to, you know, evaluate whether, you know, this was going to be one-off things or whether, you know, every every patient will have some sort of, of same organization. And uh, and as I say, you know, the model was new, uh, the concept was new, so I think we didn't have to do, I think uh, in the this paper there was seven or eight patients, if I remember correctly. So, mm -hmm. you know, it was, it was, it was not, uh, you know, uh, an, it was a lot of work, but I, I think, you know, nowadays, you know, doing uh, 
seven or eight, uh, you may need it to have also single cell and, and much more. So the concept, uh, I think the, the, the real breakthrough from, from some of these work is mostly because, you know, uh, we have a, a, a new concept, a new, new idea of how the cancer develop and the concept of not that not every cell looks the same and only a subfraction are the most important one. I think the, the concept may make it to to, to high level uh, journal. But now you're actually at a place where you can leverage some of those exciting new technologies. You're a group leader at the, the Crick Institute, mm -hmm. the Francis Crick Institute, which is, of course, a world-class research facility in London. It's apparently the single largest biomedical laboratory in Europe. It's a yeah. relatively new research center. It was established in 2010 and finally officially opened in 2016. But it's really an international powerhouse for biomedical research. And I've got some friends in the UK who have been absolutely raving about it. So for the uninitiated, tell us a little bit more about the Crick Institute. What drew you there and what do you love about it? So I was actually uh, one of the, so the Francis Crick uh, came uh, in life based on the merge of two institutes already, the London Stem Cell Institute, where I was, uh, the cancer was funded by Cancer Research UK, and the um, MRC, uh, Mill Hill, that was also there for, for quite some time. And we both of, of this institute needed space and uh, it was uh, thought at a higher level that maybe, you know, merging uh, these two institutes to a central place in central London uh, will be a good idea. So, you know, it's not my idea, but clearly, you know, uh, other people have thought about that and get uh, money from the government in order to, to, to create the Francis Crick Institute. And I think, you know, uh, our uh, director, Paul Nos, has been very instrumental in, in, in getting uh, these uh, to the ground. Uh, the Institute is indeed, so we moved to the Francis Creek from these two institutes. Uh, most of, almost all the people from these two uh, institutes, from Mill and, and from Lincoln's in field, moved physically to this new institute in late 2015, uh, 2016, essentially. And uh, yes, since then, uh, we have expanded. Uh, clearly, and the great advantage of these both institute that we had different uh, different um, capacities. So you know, Mill Hill it was known for more virology, uh, neuronal development. Uh, the and the Lincoln Sin Institute were more cancer related immunology. So you bring more uh, people together. We have much more collaboration in between us now. And we're actually uh, really expanding on the idea of you know, uh, multi multidisciplinary people. So we have you know, both physicists, uh, mathematics, bioinformatics. So the idea is you know, to bring in the same platform, in the same unit, in the same institute, uh, a number of people that may not necessarily uh, um, uh, jump uh, on, on uh, in uh, in a corridor and uh, get get some ideas and get some some innovative uh, research uh, by 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 that mean. Yeah, you mentioned it's uh, led by Paul Nurse, who's my man. He was the president of uh, the Rockefeller yeah. University when I was there, and I, I loved all the interactions I had with him. 
He was so enthusiastic about science, and I likened him at the time. I was really into cooking. He was like this Jamie Oliver type personality. You know, <laughs> he had this exuberance for science. He was totally approachable, and it's no coincidence, you know, that that you're there too. It's it's icons like you of science who who you know deal in concepts as you talked about before, because mm-hmm. that's really what drives science. And Dr. Nurse is one of those. Is one of those. You're one of those who who, you know, you work with concepts, and I think that's what drives the innovation. So thanks for sharing those stories with us. But, you know, it's not all brilliant ideas. I'm sure some of those ideas go by the wayside. So as our, part of our kind of post here, we're going to ask you some science peripheral questions. And the first one I have to ask you, someone who has such, you know, high achievements and such a reputable career, why don't you tell us uh, about a, a science blunder, maybe a positive one, but a, a, your greatest science blunder in your scientific career? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether it's a real science, but when I, I you know, you asked me about uh, where, uh, this question, I, I, I thought, you know, the first one that came in my mind was actually uh, more, uh, you know, uh, a point that. When I was asked to do a presentation in uh, in, an, in an institute in a research institute in France, um, I uh, came up with all my talk uh, all made, and uh, they suddenly said to me, you know, there's a lot of junior people there, you know, they don't speak English at all. Uh, you will have to do all your presentation in French, and you know, I'm, I'm French, <laughs> so I thought, you know. Clearly, I should, I should, I should, I should do it, and I was completely rubbish. I mean, I, I've never been so so bad at it. I couldn't, I couldn't find the term. I was, I was very, you know, nervous, and I think that was my the worst, the worst presentation I've ever done in my <laughs> own life uh, on that. And I thought to myself, you know, never, never accept to go. And give a talk in French any anywhere <laughs> anymore. So I don't think it's a scientific uh, blunder, but it was clearly a blunder for me uh, personally to to not be able to speak my language and, and articulate what I wanted to do during a, a scientific presentation. So uh, yeah, uh, and since then I think I'm 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 have been I was so traumatized that I I I never accepted any invitation to when I'm sure that I will have to speak in French anymore. Well, it is. It's a beautiful language, but perhaps uh, English is the language of science for a reason. Although I don't know exactly what that reason is, but hey, I guess we defer uh, less and never revert to your native language when you're when you're trying to give a presentation. I'll have to remember that. But for me, I guess it's not a problem. All right. Going to the final series here, we have some fill in the blanks for you. Dr. Bonet, uh, first, the biggest thing in the stem cell field, that could be cancer stem cells as well, the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is? I think the, still the IPS for me. That was a mind blower for me to to know that with a, a few, you know, a few, G, a few transcription factor, you can convert any cells into, uh, you know, a stem cells. And now maybe, you know, uh, direct conversion from one cell type to the others. Uh, that's also something that I'm still very puzzled with because, you know, we have, uh, we, we, I think we try 
for many years to understand, you know, leukemic stem cell and how that could happen. But I think, you know, you don't need a lot in order to convert completely, uh, uh, you know, uh, macrophage into B cells. And you need only one factor, for example. And that's that's surprising to me. Yes. Identity is fluid. It's an idea that's still reverberating now more mm -hmm. than 15 years later, or roughly 15 years later. Um, next, I would never have gotten to this point in my career without. I think this is uh, maybe, you know, uh, something not very original, but I think without, you know, my family support, that's clearly, you know, uh, allowing me to, to, to fulfill my dream and always being there for me at every stage of the way. Yeah, people call your parents, call yeah. your wife, call your husband, call your kids, call somebody. All right, next. When it comes to blank, I am pretty much useless. Be informatic. <laughs> <laughs> big data, big data analysis. You know, I have the idea. I say, you know, you should do this or that. You know, put the interactome and all that. But I'm rubbish at any of these myself. So. Well. Yeah. You stick and to... I always say to my PhD, you know, learn how to do it because that's the way to go. I mean, we have massive, massive, massive data now with all these omics, and you know, don't don't be like me, being unable to do anything. <laughs> that's uh, that's clearly something you, all this new generation should 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 learn. That's funny. I find myself saying those words to my children and to my trainees. Don't be yeah. like me. That's how I start many sentences. <laughs> yeah. Um, finally, uh, if the lab catches fire and I have a chance to grab one thing on the way out, it is my... Yeah, I'm not sure I will be one thing, but I will say because of my um, the, the, the thing that we do in the lab will be all my mice. I will bring all my mice. <laughs> wow, that because would be... I think the immunodeficient mice model that we use is essential for all what we do. I'm picturing you like the Pied Piper with a whole yeah. lineup of mice yeah. falling out of the yeah. lab. I don't know how the uh, the citizens around the institute would take that, but hey. At least a, a few good breeding breeding pairs. <laughs> yeah, only the good ones. Only the only the best of them. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people would echo that. Mice, that's years, right? Decades of work that have gone into those mice, so you can't leave them behind. Uh, but um, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, yeah, Dominique. This much. has been a, a really fun chat. And thanks for sharing your insights from one of the, uh, the founders of a pivotal idea, Cancer Initiating Cells. We appreciate you sharing those insights. Thank you. Thank you very much, Aaron and Dylan. Uh, bye. All right, guys. That brings us to the end of this episode number 173. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks so much for joining us for this one, guys, with a seminal researcher, who shared her thoughts and insights with us. We thank her and thank you guys for listening. Tune in next week for our interim ISSCR episode and a couple weeks for our next scheduled episode number 174. You'll hear from us then.